Well, my name is Caleb, one of the pastors here at The Grove. Um, and if you haven't noticed, we have uh, some younger uh, people here in the congregation this morning who are joining us. Our kindergartner through third graders who are usually upstairs are here with us this morning. Uh, every time there's a fifth Sunday, then all of our kindergartners uh, and uh, earlier elementary students join with us throughout the entirety of the service. And if you're in kindergarten through third grade, you're usually upstairs. Um, I just want you to know, I am so glad that you're here this morning. Uh, I hope that you feel like and you believe what, what it is that, that we know to be true. This is your church as well. Um, and we love being able to have you here. And listen, if your parents start falling asleep, just pinch them. <laughs> just whisper in their ear, start rustling. Just, just make sure that they're awake. You're, you're going to be a, a welcome guest here this morning. Uh, I'm so glad that you are here with us this morning. As we continue our study through the book of 1 Peter, we're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 through uh, 21 this morning. So you got your Bibles, you can go ahead and flip there. Uh, we're going to be in verse 13 through 21. If you're unfamiliar with the Bible, uh, the larger numbers are the chapter numbers, the smaller numbers are the verse numbers. So we'll be in chapter 1, verses 13 through 21. Um, here's what Peter's getting to in this text. If you are a Christian, God has a claim on your life. If you are a believer and follower of Jesus, God has a claim on your conduct. Well, what claim is that? Well, Peter shows us in our text, the claim is this, you are to be holy in all of your conduct. That's the claim. God's expectation for those whom he has saved, as we've seen verses 1 through 12, this great salvation that the prophets long to understand, the angels long to look into, that salvation produces a holy people. God has saved us from the slavery to sin, and he saved us to himself. This comes now to that section of what we've been saved to. We've been looking at what we've been saved from. Peter now helps us see what we are saved to. God hasn't just freed us from our slavery to sin and gone, okay, you guys can go do whatever you want to now. There is now a claim that he has, and that claim is that we are to be holy in all of our conduct. Now, a couple of things to say before we dive into this. First, I think this is helpful for us to see, and this is one of the benefits, I think, of expository preaching. See, expository preaching just takes the Bible, and regularly, it's what we do here in the morning. We just go chapter by chapter, verse by verse, through books of the Bible. It helps us get the whole counsel of God. If, if it was up to me to just pick and choose what we're going to preach from, I would go to verses like 1 Peter 1, 3, probably all the time. Lord, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ because of his great mercy. He has given us new birth into the living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Let's talk about it and let's talk about it some more. Amen. But there is also a therefore here in verse 13 that leads to something else. And it helps make sure that we aren't putting our own weight on things, our own emphasis on things, but we are getting the emphasis of the entire Bible. We want to be whole Bible people. What has God said to us in its entirety? And what we will see is that all those beautiful promises of our salvation lead to something. And it helps us make sure that what it's leading to is an expectation and a call to be separate and different from the world, or to use the word in our text this morning, to be holy. And the reason why I think this is important is because I can feel a growing sense, especially in kind of the evangelical church culture, to kind of push back against what God has told us to do. Ah, it's legalism. That's fundamentalism. You can't tell me what to do. Only God can judge me. It's like, bro, it's not the Bible. That's Tupac, okay? God... We're moving on from Tupac quotes for the rest of the sermon. There is this tendency to want to push back against it. Well, I'm just a messy Christian. Oh, I'm just a big mess. I, I, and well, God loves me in my mess. And I don't need, don't, you can't tell me to get out of my mess. Like God loves me here. And there is no, there, it feels like there is this, this resistance to this, this, this hesitancy to say, no, God expects holiness of us. He's called us to live holy lives. Well, you can't tell me what to do. 
No, God loves me in my mess. That's grace. And I go, yes, absolutely. Oh, Romans, Romans 5. Where sin increases, grace increases all the more. Praise God. But you know what he says in Romans 6? Well, what then? Should we just continue to sin so that grace may increase all the more? By no means. But we have been set free from slavery to sin and now slaves to God. These things go together. And so there is this tendency to kind of pull back against what God has called us to be out of fear of falling into legalism or fundamentalism, which are real abuses to the truth of God. And some of you may have walked out of churches like that. You may have walked out of maybe a more fundamental or legalistic mindset that will have a list of external things for you to do. And if you conform to those things, some of them are in the Bible, a lot of them are not. But this is what Christianity means, to check off all of these lists. And all of your effort is putting forward this external conformity. Well, friends, that's not what it means to be holy. Holiness is not just a checklist of external things. You want to know what holiness is summed up? It's a reflection of God's character. For us to be holy, we'll get into that in our text today. And you know what the summary of God's character is? Jesus summed it up this way. Two commands. Love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. Amen. That's the character of God. That's holiness. So it shouldn't surprise us then, and, and we'll get to this next week, that the expression then of this holiness is that from a pure heart of love to love one another constantly. That's what holiness leads to. It leads to love. A love of God that sees him as our supreme treasure and a love of neighbor that holds their interests above our own. That's holiness. Not a checklist of things. Okay, so I just want to make sure we talk about this today. That's what we're talking about. Reflecting God's character, particularly his love. Loving God and loving others. So that's why I think that this text is important for us today to make sure that we don't shrink back from these texts that God is calling us to live in. Now the other reason why it's important is there may be some of you that walk in here this morning and you are, you are acutely aware of your unholiness. You're already like, okay, seriously, I don't need anyone to tell me I'm not holy. I'm very aware of that. I know the mistakes that I've made. I know maybe the mistake that I've made in the last week, the last month, the last six months, and it looms over me, and I'm worried if God can forgive me. And now I'm about to hear a sermon on holiness, wondering, uh, I, I, I've got enough condemnation on my own. I don't need anything else. Well, friends, it's important for us to understand when we talk about holiness, we're not talking about perfection. We're not talking about God saying, okay, now that I've saved you, you're never going to make a mistake again. You will sin. You will sin every minute. No, maybe not every minute, every day. Every week. That's why every week in our service, we have a moment for us to confess because we know we need that space every week. The mark of a Christian is not perfection. It is repentance. It's incredibly important that we get that clear as we jump into this. If you begin to hear what God's called us to and go, oh, here's now the standard to which I'm to live. I can never meet there and I then can't be perfect. You need to know as we enter into, God is not expecting you to be perfect. Jesus has already been perfect. He calls us then to strive to be like Jesus, to hold on to the thing that's holding on to us, to hold on to the one that's holding on to us, but to know that when we fall, there is grace and forgiveness, and you repent, and every time you come back to the Father, every time there's grace, there's love, and there's acceptance. So we need to understand that entering in as we get into our text then this morning. I want to read it in its entirety, and then we'll look and see how Peter helps us rightly think about holiness and gives us four motivations to be a holy people. Uh, verse 13, Peter writes this, Therefore, with your minds ready for action, be sober-minded and set your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the desires of your former ignorance, but as the one who called you is holy, you also are to be holy in all your conduct. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. If you appeal to the Father who judges impartially according to each one's work, you are to conduct yourselves in reverence during your time living as strangers. For you know that you were redeemed from your empty way of life, inherited from your ancestors, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of an unblemished and spotless lamb. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, 
but was revealed in these last times for you. Through him, you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Now, Peter writes this and helps us not only see the call to holiness, but gives us here four motivations for holiness. First motivation we'll see is the return of God. The return of God. We see that in verse 13. Second motivation is the character of God. See that in verses 14 to 16. Third motivation is the fear of God. Verse 17. And the last motivation is the blood of God. Verses 18 through 21. The first motivation that Peter gives is the return of God. Looking at verse 13. Therefore, with your minds ready for action, be sober-minded and set your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, this may be an interesting place, it seems like, for Peter to start. This, this verse kind of functions as a bridge between the first 12 verses, laying out what God has done for us in Christ, the living hope that we have, the inheritance we're marching towards, this salvation that's so incredible. Therefore, now, we are then to set our minds, to set our hope completely on the grace that's to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This revealing of Jesus, not in his first coming during the first Christmas, but in his second coming when Christ returns. Peter is saying that you are to live in this call for holiness with your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is the first command. There's three commands in this text. The first one is this, set your hope completely on this grace to be brought to you. Friends, what is your hope set on? What do you hope in? What is it that you go, boy, if I had this thing, then I know that it will bring me security, assurance, a steadiness. What is your hope in? Uh, Peter says that our hope is to be completely, not partially, not mostly, completely on the grace that is to be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This hoping, again, we've talked about this a lot. It's not a fingers crossed. It's not a wishing. You know, it's not crossing our fingers going, boy, I hope it doesn't hail today because it has like 18 times this week. A biblical hope is a sure hope, it's a confidence, it's an expectation because it pulls the future promise into the present circumstance because it's anchored in a past reality. That's what hope is. It's the promise of heaven bringing hope into your present reality because it's anchored in the already resurrected Christ. That's Peter's logic here. And that hope is in the hope that's the grace that is ahead of you, not in the stuff around you. It's easy to set your hope in stuff, in money, in power, in prestige. Peter's saying, no, 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 no. Hope in the grace that's ahead of you. That's going to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, 18. We don't focus on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. The very next chapter in 2 Corinthians 5, he then launches into the hope we have in heaven. And that's the hope that's described here, but... How then does that hope completely, hoping completely and fully on the grace we brought at the revelation of Jesus Christ, how do we set our hope? What does it mean to set our hope on that returning? Well, Peter gives us two things, and both of them have to do with the mind. Did you hear that in verse 13? With your minds ready for action. Be sober-minded. It begins in our minds. Some of your translations there in verse 13 may talk about girding up your loins. That's literally what the phrase is. And like, I, I have no idea what that means. That's why they translate it in a lot of English translations to this, ready for action. It's an idiom that's used um, during ancient times when people would wear robes. And they needed to then do something pressing. They needed to run. They needed to work. They needed to do something. They would take their robes, pull between their legs, wrap it around their waist, and tuck it in so they could move. They were ready for action. They girded up their loins. That's the expression. It's, it's interestingly enough, it's what God told the Israelites to do in Exodus 12 when he was coming to the Passover. He told them to eat. He told them to be sure that they were ready for action because he was about to set them free. To gird up your loins. Have your sandals on. Have your robes tucked in because tonight I'm freeing you from Egypt. It's Exodus 12, 11. This kind of readiness for action 
in our minds, your minds ready for action, your minds girded up, your minds ready to work, this kind of discipline, this kind of effort, this kind of intentionality and concentration. That's what Peter's saying here. It takes effort within our mind to begin to set the, our minds on this hope. Tom Schreiner's excellent commentary in First Peter said this, hope will not become a reality without disciplined thinking. Hope will not become a reality in your life without disciplined thinking. Your mind has to be ready for action, to gird up your loins and be ready to work. That's what's needed. Pouring through these great and precious promises Peter describes in 2 Peter. Learning, filling your mind, filling your heart with the truth of who God is so that you would be ready then to have that kind of a hope. It doesn't just come on its own. Your mind must be ready for action. Secondly, you must be sober-minded. Sober-minded. There's a broader range of simply sobriety and, and drunkenness. Namely, it's restraint and moderation which avoids excess in passion, rashness, or confusion. Avoiding excess in passion, rashness, or confusion. Kind of a, you know these people that are reasonable, that are steady. They never get too high or too low. They're not drawn into the passion and heat of an argument. They stay sober-minded. They stay reasonable. You know, like everyone on the comments in Facebook. That's what that is. It's sober-minded. It's a sense of having self-control and making sure that our minds aren't given in then to this way. Uh, again, Schreiner uh, points out this. He says, there is a way of living that becomes dull to the reality of God. Moving into a drunken state, it dulls you to reality. Schreiner says, there's a way of living that becomes dull to the reality of God, that's anesthetized by the attractions of this world. Oh, when people are lulled and not... Uh, not such drowsiness into such drowsiness. They lose sight of Christ's future revelation of himself and concentrate only on fulfilling earthly desires. Peter's saying, no, be sure, sober-minded. Don't be caught into this kind of dullness with your reality around you. Keep your mind set fully, completely on the grace to be revealed to you. Be ready for action. Be sober-minded. And just, uh, we, we need to take a quick tangent because I don't know if you know, 2024 is an election year. And I'm sure it's gonna be fine. We're going to see reasonableness and sober-mindedness all over the place. And I say that because this, I underline this verse in 13, because again, Peter's talking about what it means to live in exile, living as strangers in this world. It's a good text for us next year. It doesn't mean don't care. Notice Peter doesn't say remove yourself entirely, but as we engage with the world, we engage ready for action at the revelation of Jesus, knowing that he's returning, and we engage in a sober-minded way, and not caught up in the passion and the heat, not engaging like the world does. We mirror Jesus, not our favorite political pundit. This is what Peter's saying. This is a command, this is a Christian expectation. Be sober-minded. Our friends, a good thing for us to remember moving into next year. And he's helping us then, as we're sober-minded, we're ready for action, those two things between our ears begin to help us set our hope then on the second return of Jesus. Now friends, if God does not have your uh, God, in order for God to have your heart, he must first have your mind. This is what we see here. But you may be asking, well, how does having a certain hope in the future return of Jesus affect our present holiness? I thought you said this was a motivation for holiness. Well, friends, as you are sober-minded, as you have your minds ready for action, as your hope becomes set fully on the return of Jesus, it changes the way that we live today. I'll put it this way. I don't know if this is a situation that you all find yourselves in. Uh, if you're married, and my, my wife maybe will go and run some errands while the kids are napping, and she leaves, and as she leaves, just kind of last minute, may throw out like, hey, while I'm gone, you know, running all these errands for our household, would you mind cleaning the dishes? Sink full of dishes. I go, okay, no problem. Got it. Easy. And she leaves, and I go, I mean, I've got like an hour and a half, two hours. It's going to be fine. I'm like, I'm going to watch a TV show. It'll be great. The kids are napping. It'll be wonderful. Sit down, watch an episode. Get to the end of the episode. It's a great cliffhanger, so you have to watch the next episode. It's like, ah, I've still got plenty of time. You start the next episode. Get then to the end. You're like, okay, maybe I'll start working. Right before the end of the second episode, all of a sudden I get a text message that said, hey, on my way home. Here's what happened next. I gird up my loins, <laughs> and I run to the sink. The imminent return of my spouse created a sort of urgency that sprung me into action. 
friends, whenever we live with the reality that know that Jesus has said he's coming soon, his imminent return should spring us into action. It should create this sense of urgency as we live, going, I'm not going to waste my time on the things that Jesus has died for. I'm going to live ready for action today. I'm going to be putting to death these things that have pulled me away from my Savior because he's coming. And when he comes, I want him to, be finding, to find me doing his work, that living with that kind of an urgency. I don't know if you have heard one of the great, one of the, it was voted one of the 100 greatest uh, marketing slogans uh, in, uh, in American business, Motel 6, all right, their famous slogan, we'll leave the light on for you. <laughs> Motel 6, I don't you know, again, just free trivia for you this morning, Motel 6 named that because when it began in the 60s, every room cost $6. And anyway, I guess Motel 114 doesn't have the same ring to it nowadays. But that's how it began its name. And the sense is, is that we will always be ready for you. We'll leave the light on for you. We're expecting you. Friends, that's what Peter and what the Bible calls us to, living with our minds set, our hopes set completely on the return of Jesus. We live in a way in which the light is always on. We're ready for the master to come home. We're expecting him. That's what Jesus says in Luke 12. Verse 35 to 37, he gives the parable just like this. Be ready for service and have your lamps lit. You're to be like a people waiting for their master to return from the wedding banquet so that when he comes and knocks, they can open the door for him at once. Blessed will be those servants the master finds alert when he comes. The ones that have left the light on for him. The first motivation for holiness that Peter shows us here in the text is this return of God, the return of Jesus, for us to live in a way that we have the light on for him. We're ready for action, sober-minded. The second motivation he gives us is the character of God. Verse 14 through 16. Tells us as obedient children not to be conformed to the desires of your former ignorance, but as the one who called you is holy, you also are to be holy in all your conduct. This is the main imperative here given. I told you there's three imperatives, three commands here. This is the second one, to be holy in all your conduct. And what's the basis for Peter of our holiness here? The motivation of our holiness here, to be holy in all your conduct. Why? Because the one who called you is holy. You are to be holy because the one who called you is holy. Move away and don't be conformed to the desires, to the passion of your former ignorance, your former life. Again, I think this is why Peter's writing to Gentiles here primarily and not not Jewish Christians. Because he's telling them to not be conformed to the desires of their former ignorance. And one of the things that marked the Gentiles during this time period is they were people that were godless. They were Bibleless. They were promiseless. They were ignorant. The Jewish people had known God's promises. But the people that Peter's writing to, he's saying, don't go back to your old ways, to your ways of ignorance. Because Christ has now come for you. And the Jewish people have no leg up on you. The greatest Jewish prophets long to understand what you get to experience as Gentile Christians. No, don't fall back into your desires or your former ignorance, but instead, because the one who has called you is holy, you also are to be holy, and listen to this, in all your conduct, in everything you do. And we've said the um, uh, quote from, uh, oh, oh, what is his name? Mm. Oh, I should have put this in my notes. I didn't. His name is something. Listen, the, he, the author of Hebrews said, someone somewhere said, and then he quotes it, so I can do that. Someone somewhere said this, that there is not a square inch in all the universe in which Christ does not claim mine. And while that's true in all of creation, friends, it's true in every second of your life as well. There is not a moment in your life in which Christ has not claimed mine. He is sovereign over you in all of your conduct. This is the call for holiness in all of your conduct. In every interaction you have with your spouse, with your children, with your parents, with your coworkers, with your friends, the people you're driving with, the waitress that messed up your order for the third time. Oh, friends, all of your conduct. The way in which you work, the way in which you fill out your taxes, the way in which you conduct yourself, All of your conduct is the claim that God has on us. We are to be holy in all of our conduct. Why? Because the one who called us is holy. The motivation that Peter gives here now is he moves from the return of God and now looks at the character of God. 
and says we should look to see what God is like and that should motivate us to want to be like him. Uh, again, I know we've got our elementary uh, kids in here this morning, so kindergarten, first graders, second graders, third graders. Has anyone ever come up to you and said, man, you look just like your mom. You look just like your dad. You ever gotten that before? A time or two, probably. Oh, friends, what Peter is saying here is that for every Christian, when they come up to you, they should be able to go, you have a striking resemblance to your father. There should be a, a family resemblance. Is he is holy, we are to be holy. And then he quotes Leviticus, verse 16, for it is written, be holy, why? Because, what's the motivation? For I am holy. That's the motivation. To reflect God and his character. And again, as we said, these are not just a bunch of external rules. Christianity is not about external conformity, but internal transformation. Christianity is not just a list of do's and don'ts that we try really hard to do. It's about new hearts that lead to new actions. And our obedience doesn't earn anything from God, but it displays that we are in fact saved. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But friends, a faith that saves is never alone. It always produces something in our lives. He is holy, therefore we are holy. Like father, like son. And so in situations, again, as a parent, you enter in, in that moment, whether it's in love, whether it's in correction and discipline, one of the things that should roll through our minds is to go, how has God responded and treated me? And that should shape the way that we treat our children. We want to be holy like he is holy. We are to forgive as he has forgiven us. We are to love as he has loved us. You hear those, those, those are the commands all throughout the New Testament and they're all rooted in the character of God. And so as you look at your life and wondering, God, I wish I could forgive, I wish I could, could truly forgive this person who's come and asked for forgiveness, that I could forgive them, but I'm still holding this on in my heart. How do I get there? Let me tell you how you get there. Turn and look at the way that God has forgiven you. Over and over and over again. This is what Peter asked Jesus. How many times do I have to forgive? Seven times 70? How many times is that? Listen, if you're doing the math, you've missed the point of what Jesus said. The point is that we should forgive as many times as people come and ask for forgiveness. Why? Because that's what God has done for us. The way that he has forgiven us shapes and changes the way that we forgive others. It motivates our forgiveness. It motivates our love. It motivates our holiness. As we behold him, we begin to become like him. As we behold him and we see him, who he is, we begin to see the way he's interacted with us. We see the way that he has saved us. We see the way that he is and his character, the true origination of beauty and goodness. We then begin to long to be like him, to be holy because he is holy. To leave aside all the ways of our former ignorance, to not be conformed to them, but to be conformed to Christ. That's holiness. Again, it's not just a list of things. It's becoming more and more shaped and fashioned into the likeness of Jesus and the character of God. This is the second motivation that Peter gives us. The third motivation, verse 17, is the fear of God. Verse 17, if you appeal to the Father who judges impartially according to each one's work, you are to conduct yourselves in reverence during your time living as strangers. Now, some of your translations there may say, conduct yourselves in fear during your time of exile. And what Peter's saying is now there's this motivation of living lives, conducting our lives, conducting ourselves in fear during this time in exile. During this time living as strangers, the CSB translates it to. There's the third imperative here, and this is a third and final kind of imperative command that Peter gives. Set your hope fully. Be holy. Conduct yourselves in holiness. And now conduct yourself in fear and reverence. Now, it's interesting here in verse 17, you hear at the very beginning, Peter says, if you appeal to the Father who judges impartially, according to each one's work, you are to conduct yourselves in fear and reverence. Peter holds up the reality that God is both father and judge. And he doesn't see those things as incompatible. 
He holds them both up as true. And we need to see that there is a kind of fear that doesn't contradict intimacy. And we need to make sure as we talk about what it means to live in fear, the fear of God, that's a phrase you see throughout the Bible. Uh, There's certainly ways that we can misinterpret that. And we need to be careful on on both sides. There's a couple of things that we need to be careful of. As we need to be careful that we don't wrongly teach fear. We need to be careful as we hear that, the, the, the initial way we read that, that we conduct ourselves in fear. God's the judge who judges impartially. We may go, oh, so as Christians, we're supposed to live kind of in this state of terror? That's abject terror and fray, just always wondering, is God just going to lose his cool and throw a lightning bolt down on us and just strike us down? Uh, and we need to just live with that kind of fear. But friends, terror is incompatible with the Christian life. It does not go together. That's not the kind of fear that Peter's writing about. When we, when we read, goodness, just in his own letter a few sentences earlier about a living hope that we have, about an inheritance that's imperishable, unfading, kept in heaven for us as God is keeping us by his power until we get there. Oh, friends, we should not be terrorized by that reality. There is peace and hope and joy that mark the Christian life, not terror. So what then is he talking about? Well, we see that, again, the CSB gets at this in in the word reverence, this kind of reverential fear, living in awe, coming into contact with something that's so much bigger than you, but kind of puts us in our plates and creates something in us in response to its bigness. I've never been to the Grand Canyon, but if you have, I can imagine as you walk up to the edge, there's all of a sudden this feeling in your stomach that begins to grow. This sense of fear and awe as you stand before this thing that's so much greater than you. And what does that fear do in you? Keeps you from being an idiot and falling off the side. That fear protects you. It motivates you to not do anything foolish. And friends, that's the sense in which we are to approach God and see, oh, he... He is so much greater than us. He is holy. The the sinless angels stand around his throne and cry out that he is separate and other and holy from them. He is the creator. Everything else is the created. He is holy. He is different. He is separate. And as we approach him, he is a consuming fire. This is what the author of Hebrews says. Hebrews 12, 29. Our God is a consuming fire, bringing back images of Exodus as God descended on Mount Sinai with lightning and thunder and fire and wind. And the people's response was the sense of fear as they were coming in contact with someone that was nothing like them. And the author of Hebrews says, here is our response because our God is our consuming fire. We should conduct ourselves with reverence and awe. That's the sense in which we are to live. And that's kind of a a state of of healthy fear and awe and reverence. Because of the reality of who God is and that awe, that reverence, that fear, it keeps us from doing things that will destroy our lives. Understanding who he is as our judge I love The Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe by C.S. Lewis. It's a wonderful, wonderful series. Listen, again, uh, elementary kids, hear with us this morning. If you're, if you're looking for something for your parents to do, tell them after the service, hey, go buy The Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe, and let's start reading it every night. They will, it, listen, they will probably like it even more than you. It's wonderful. It helps us see so much of what God is like, this story of our relationship with God, what Christ has done. I think Netflix is making a new series as well. I hope it's good. We'll see. But in it, there's this scene where these kids are about to go and meet the kind of main character of the story, Aslan. He's the great lion. He represents Christ in the story. And they haven't met him yet, so they don't know what he's like. And so they meet these two other characters. This, this child does. Lucy is her name. Uh, she meets these two other characters, Mr. and Mrs. Beaver, because they're animals and they can talk. Again, it's fiction. You'll read it. You'll understand. Meets these two beavers and begins to ask what he's like. And as she's asking, she assumes he's a man, and as she begins to talk to him, finds out, oh, he's not a man, he's a lion. He's the great lion. And now she's starting to get a little nervous. Because right? I don't know if you've ever met a lion. It's not a, it's not a wonderful thing. Here's her response. She says, oh, I, I, I thought he was a man. Is he, is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Well, that you will, dearie, and make no mistake. I can't do a British accent, so I'm not even going to try. 
That you will, dearie, and make no mistake, said Miss Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Well, then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Miss Beaver tells you? Who said anything about being safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Friends, we are to live our lives in a reverential fear of God. He is not safe. Oh, but he is good. He is our father and our judge who will judge impartially. No one has an in with the father. There is no good old boys club in the throne room of God. He judges impartially. So as you stand before him, it doesn't matter who your parents are. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter your church attendance. It doesn't matter if you've preached. It doesn't matter if you sing. It doesn't matter how much you've given. What matters is, have you trusted in the one who has died for you? Because he will judge impartially. And the only one who can stand before him is the one in perfect holiness, in perfect righteousness. And you go, well, that's not me. Exactly. That's what Christ has come to do for you. To live a life of perfect righteousness, following every law, every command, perfect holiness. And then he died in your place. Not only taking your sin and absorbing your punishment, but then giving you his righteousness, his life, his holiness. So that when you stand before God on that day, we don't claim anything that we've done. We claim Christ. There's nothing in my hands I bring. It's simply to the cross I cling. That is our standing. And so we know for all those in Christ, then there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That is our hope. That is our reality. But friends, God is not safe. As we see him, that reality should begin to change again the way that we live. Knowing that we shouldn't just give ourselves over to sin, to unholiness, and just begin to fall into it and go, oh, it's fine. God will forgive me. I know, I've read Romans 8.1. There's no condemnation. I can do it. He's my friend. He's my father. Again, when I was in high school, there's a t-shirt. Jesus is my homeboy. We're going to be good. <laughs> but friends, if you think that, well, you need, you need a healthy fear of God. We do not take his holiness lightly. Do not take his character lightly. That's why, again, what Cindy read earlier, 2 Corinthians 7.1, let us then cleanse ourselves from every impurity of the flesh and the spirit. Bringing, listen to this, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Paul connects those same things as well. This fear is a, a, motivate, a motivator for us to keep us from falling off the cliff. Oh God, you are holy. And that reverential awe motivates us to holiness as well. Fourth motivator that Peter gives is in the blood of God. The blood of God, verses 18 to 21. Then shifts, he says, For you know that you were redeemed from your empty way of life, inherited from your ancestors. Now, that word redeemed, if you've been in church, you've probably heard that word a lot. It becomes a very churchy word. It had a very technical meaning, even outside of Christianity during this time in the Old Testament. And its meaning was the sense in which someone was a slave. If someone came and purchased them from their slavery and freed them from their slavery, they paid that redemption price. They redeemed them from slavery. They were then set free. And it's manumission, this redemption. You know, it was used outside even the context of Scripture. Well, the, the Holy Spirit inspiring these authors to use that word to show what Christ has done for us. That we were in bondage to our own sin in slavery to our own sin, to hell and death. But Christ, in his mercy, came and paid a price for us to be redeemed. He bought us and freed us from slavery. We have been freed. And so we have been redeemed from this empty way of life. I love that, that adjective that Peter uses, that that way of life, apart from God, is empty. It's empty. If you're here and you're not a Christian... There are, everything in this world will offer you joy, peace, hope. 
And, and there's everything we're doing to try to cram in our hearts to find that kind of satisfaction, to satisfy in our hearts this longing that we feel. Money, prestige, vocation, family, friends, houses, stuff, whatever it is, we're going to be trying to cram for it. But let me just say, if you haven't found out already, it can't satisfy what your heart is longing for. It's empty. And by God's grace, maybe you've come in here realizing that, going, that I, I, can't, I can't find... I still have, I'm about to quote you too. That's not what I, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. That's, it just comes out. Bono just comes out at times. But nothing in this world can satisfy what it is your heart is longing for. Again, C.S. Lewis said, there's nothing in this world that can satisfy our hearts. But for him, it's a proof that we were made for another world. Oh, friends, it's an empty way of life. And God has redeemed us from that. What Peter focuses on here isn't so much the redemption, but he focused on the price that was paid. What did it cost for us to be redeemed? And I love the comparison as he looks at the most valuable metals in that time, the most precious resources, and what does he call them? Oh, these perishable things like silver and gold. You were redeemed, you were bought, but not with perishable things like silver and gold, not with the most precious thing that this world has to offer. No, those are perishable. But you, oh, you have been bought, you have been purchased, you have been redeemed with the precious blood of Christ. Like that of an unblemished and spotless lamb. You hear the image, Peter's pulling back, for, again, from Exodus as God's people were in bondage and slavery in Egypt, God then gives them the Passover, this plague in which the angel of death is going to come into every household and kill every firstborn of both the, the, the children and the livestock unless you were to take a perfect lamb, an unblemished lamb, one with no defect, no defect and no spot. And you, on the night before the angel of death comes, Take that lamb, kill it, eat it, and then take its blood and put it on your doorpost. And you then hide yourself under the blood of the lamb. And when the angel passes through, God's judgment passes through the land. When it sees the blood of the lamb, it passes over you. And Peter says, that is the price that God has paid for you. His own blood he has given to purchase you, to redeem you. And just like Egypt, just like Israel, it's the same for us. God did not free them from Israel, walk them through the Red Sea and go, all right, good luck. Go and do whatever you'd like. God led them out of Egypt and he led them to Sinai where he then gave them his law and said, you are to be holy as I am holy. He saved them from slavery and he saved them to himself. And Peter's saying it's the same for us, that we were in bondage to our sin, but God in his mercy and in his love came and he died in our place. And this, this lamb, this lamb of God who has come to take away the sin of the world, that his blood in the same way, whenever we hide ourselves under him, then the angel of death, God's judgment, his wrath passes over us because it's already fallen on the lamb. And we are freed from our slavery and we are freed to God to live a holy life in reflection of Him. The price that God paid was His own blood. Friends, your holiness has been blood bought by God Himself. Do not trample on what is precious. It's the song that we sing. A hymn, Come Behold the Wondrous Mystery. One of the verses goes like this. Come behold the wondrous mystery. Christ the Lord upon the tree. In the stead of ruined sinners hangs the lamb in victory. See the price of our redemption. See the Father's plan unfold, bringing many sons to glory, grace unmeasured, love untold. Friends, the fourth motivation for holiness is this. See the price of your redemption. The cost that it was for God to free you. His own blood. Again, we sang it earlier this service. My worth is not in what I own. Where is our worth? Our worth is in the costly wounds of love. Oh, friends, they were costly. As we see then what Christ has paid to free us, we should not then return to what he paid to save us from.
in college at Mississippi State, I accumulated a number of parking tickets. And as a college student, I thought, well, I bet if I just won't pay them, they'll go away. That's not how that works, by the way. And if at the end of my senior year, I went and paid what turned out to be a fairly hefty fee for parking tickets, if I went into the office to pay what I owed to find out that one of my friends had come in the day before and paid the price for me, whole price, all of it, gone, paid for, I would A, be very thankful for that friend, and then B, it would motivate me then from there on out to not continue to just get parking tickets because you know what, he paid for it, I bet he'll pay for it again. No, it actually motivates me in gratitude and thankfulness for the price that was paid to not do the thing that was paid for. That's the logic that Peter's getting at here to say, look at the cost of what God has done. Look at the price that he has paid. Look at his grace that's unmeasured, his love that is untold. Now, in that, go and don't go back to the thing that he just died for. See the costly wounds of love. And that plan was foreknown before the foundation of the world. It didn't catch God off guard. He didn't go, oh no, I don't know what to do right now. Oh, okay, I'll die for them. Before he created you, he knew that he would die. This was foreknown. Before God breathed life into Adam, he knew that one day he would take his own. This was foreknown before the foundation of the world. And through now him, we believe in God. This God who's raised Jesus from the dead and given him glory. So that our faith and hope are not in ourselves, not even in our own holiness. Our faith and our hope are in God. That's what Peter's writing to here. And friends, as we finish, it's important. There's, there's two words I want to highlight as we finish. Again, to make sure we don't walk out of here misunderstanding this call to holiness. This motivation for holiness. The wrong way is that we begin to go, okay, the Christian life then is I'm about to just work really hard. Holiness does take effort. You have to make every effort unto holiness. Strive unto godliness. Those are the words that are used in the New Testament. It will take work. And these four things are given to help motivate that work. But there's two things that we need to understand as we close. Two words I want us to look at. The first one's in verse 13. It's the word therefore. It's the word therefore. Peter's shifting into this whole other text now. But he uses this word first. And we say it all the time. When you're reading the Bible and you come to therefore, you need to ask, what is it therefore? It's connecting what he's about to say to what he's just said. And notice the logic that Peter has. Verses 1 through 12, you are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God and Father. Oh, his great mercy has given you a new birth and a living hope and an inheritance that will never fade, never go away, that is kept in heaven as God's power is keeping you. Oh, and you may go through suffering, but friends, God is working in that suffering. He's using it to refine your faith. He's using it to purify you so that your joy would be found not in your circumstances, but in your salvation. This salvation that prophets don't understand and that angels can't comprehend. This is what God has done for you. What, what scholars call the indicatives of the gospel. What God has done for you. Notice the order. Verses 1 through 12 come first. Here's God's salvation for you. And what's the next word in 13? Therefore, in light of what God has done for you and these indicatives, here now are your imperatives and what you are to do and how you are to live. The order is never reversed, ever. And when we do, we misunderstand the Christian life. When we begin to think, okay, let me try to be holy, and then God saves me. Let me live a life of obedience, and then I will earn God's affection and his love. He will look at me and smile, finally. No, it's the other way. God saved us while we were enemies. He freed us when we were enslaved to sin. God didn't give Israel the Ten Commandments in Egypt. He just freed them. He redeemed them. And after he had redeemed them, then he said, therefore, here's how you are to live. And friends, it's the same for us. It's everywhere in the Bible. When we misorder that, when we disorder that, we will totally confuse the Christian life. And we will miss the point of the gospel. Therefore, all this call to holiness flows out of, all those imperatives flow out of the indicatives of what God has done. We have to make sure we don't miss that order. The second thing, the second word that we have to understand as we close is in verse 14 is the word children. Peter frames this entire section on our relationship to God as Father. 
if you call to him as father, the one who judges impartially, here in verse 14, then are as obedient children. Don't be conformed to your old passions and desires. Peter isn't just saying, here's a list of rules. He's saying your identity has been changed. And that should change and impact the way you live. Your actions flow out of your altered and changed identity. God in his salvation has adopted you as a child. You are his son and you are his daughter. Oh, and friends, that is fixed. That is not up in the air. That is not, oh, I, I, I worry that I've, maybe I've done too much or, or what I've done is too bad for him to be ashamed of me. Oh, friends, just, again, remember the story of the prodigal child. There's two sons there. One did everything right. One was the worst. Which one is the example of who had been accepted to by the father? It was the prodigal. The one who did everything right never entered back into the house, never entered back into that relationship. Oh, friends, we need to understand that all this conversation about holiness is given in this context of God being our father. J.I. Packer in his book, Knowing God, put it this way, father is the Christian name for God. It changes the way we relate to him. And it changes the way that we live. One flows out of the other. Our adoption as children now change the way that we live. That's the way. We're not earning things from him. Oh, his smile on you is fixed in Christ. And as obedient children, then we long to live a holy life. So the next time you find yourself contemplating skipping church again, or you know, just because you got too much other stuff going on, life is just too busy, or there's just, you know, I'm just gonna, I'm just tired. You know, kids, just activities, there's so much going on. Friends, next time that happens, think about the return of God and what you want Jesus to find you busy doing. Next time you feel your fuse burning short, you don't have to maybe blow up in anger at your kids. Think about the character of God and how he's treated you. His patience in response to your sin. And let that motivate your response as you try to act like him. The next time you're about to click that button and go again to that website, think about the fear of God. And if you've gotten too comfortable with the forgiveness of God, taking now for granted what should be changing you. And friends, the next time you find yourself Maybe about to respond in a harsh way to your wife. Or responding to your husband in a cutting or disrespectful way, either to his face or behind his back. Friends, think about the blood of God and the price that he paid for you to love your spouse in the way that he's loved you. These are all strange ways to act. Here's another helpful description of what holiness is. It's to live in a strange way. A way that's separate, different, strange to the world. The world doesn't act like this. That's exactly why Peter's writing it. So that we would be holy. So that we would be separate. So that we would be strangers as we live here in exile. Would you pray with me?